0: Thank you, Pastor Josh, and for all who uh, participated so well this morning. I appreciated your thoughts as you prayed that, that, w- as, that we are indeed continuing to worship. Uh, the Preaching of God's Word is, is not just a, a different segment, but in fact a continuation of worship as we bow before His Holy Word I invite you to turn to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 19, as we continue to uh, glean the truths from this this Gospel. As we move into this section that you'll see to be entitled, The Crucifixion, uh, there is a sense and i think you may feel it this morning a sense of gravity a sense of soberness it uh, is indeed one of the saddest moments of human history at the same time it's a point of the greatest joy when paul wrote to the first corinthians or wrote to the corinthians in his first letter and he was discussing with them their pursuits of different avenues of wisdom. Remember he was they were living in a Grecian world where philosophy and wisdom abounded. He said to them and with very clear tones, I have decided, determined To know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. Just let that land on you for a moment. Of all the avenues of, of topics that Paul could have engaged in, he said, I decided to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. He made that statement because he divided the entire world into two groups of people. There is a group of people that think the cross is foolishness. There is a group of people that think that it's a useless endeavor to even consider the aspects of the cross. There's a group of people that never give a moment's thought to the cross. But he also said that there's a group of people to whom the cross is the power of their salvation. Remember, he's writing to Christians. There is a group of people where The preaching of the cross is the power of their salvations. I thought of some questions. How does a person break free from legalistic thinking and legalistic performance motivated living? The answer is the cross. How does a person break free from the crippling effects of condemnation? The cross. How does a person stop living life based on emotions and what we feel? The cross. How do we grow in gratitude? And thanksgiving, you know the answer, the cross. The preaching of the cross, the fixation on the cross was Paul's M.O. That's how he lived his life. And some of you might be thinking this morning, but Pastor Jim, what about the resurrection? Didn't Paul say that if... There had been no resurrection. Our faith is vain, it's empty, it's useless. Well, my friends, the logic is simple. If there's no death, there's no resurrection. Even Thomas, when he saw the risen Savior, would say, unless I see the in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. We give Thomas a hard time, usually, even calling him Doubting Thomas. I think Thomas was rather logical. If this appearance of the Savior did not bear the reality of his death, This is a phony experience. The cross is, as some have said, the crux of the matter, using a double entendre. The cross is the crux of the matter. It's the dividing point in human history. And the purpose that John wrote this letter, or this gospel, is to provide credible evidence That, in fact, Jesus is the Christ, he is the promised Messiah, he is the Son of God, and he actually did come and suffer, and he actually did really die, and he actually did really rise again. So let's turn to John 19, and we'll pick up verse 16, in the latter part of verse 16, and read the story of the crucifixion. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There were crucified and there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the, the city one part for each soldier also his tunic but the tunic was seamless woven in one piece from the top to the bottom so they said to one another let us not tear it but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be this was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, That you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look upon him who they have pierced. Verse 35 is the reason I tell you this is why this account is here. The author, John, wants us to know that what he saw is true. And it's a truth you can believe in. Let's just consider the story for a moment. I'm going to import some of the other evangelists just to remind you of some of the events that took place. Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified along with two other criminals. Jesus bore his cross and he went to the site of execution. Golgotha. John omits the story of Simon the Cyrene who came to help Jesus carry the cross. I think it's important to note that as Jesus was crucified by that, meaning as he was attached to the cross, he prayed to the Father and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Pilate, as we read, had made an inscription, the king of the Jews, and the Jews wanted to change that, particularly the chief priests, they didn't want that. He claimed to be, he said he was the king. Pilate stood his ground. He said, No, that's the way the sign will read. Before Christ was crucified, the soldiers took his garments and tore them up and divided them. And that it was the fulfillment in part of Psalm twenty two, which we had read this morning. Passers by as as, as the roadways were nearby, they would pass by and they would mock Jesus. One of the robbers on one side was mocking Jesus. The other, though, you'll recall the story that rebuked the criminal from mocking Jesus and, in fact, confessed Christ as Lord, and Jesus promised that that day he would be with him in paradise. It was then that Jesus noticed his mother, along with two other Marys. And it's interesting to note that Jesus looked at John. It's clearly John the disciple, the cousin of Jesus. And said, this is your mother. And he said to his mother, this is your son. Jesus created a new family in that instant. You'll remember that the brothers of Jesus, even up to this time, didn't believe in him. But from the cross, our Savior appointed a new family and said to his cousin John, you look after my mom. You call her mom, you treat her as mom. Mom, this is now your son. The cross reminds us that spiritual relationships are far more important than blood. The cross reminds us that who our mother and father and sister and brother in this life is certainly significant, but what's more important is who your brother is and your sister in Christ. At that point, darkness came over the land, lasted for about three hours, and then, quoting again from Psalm 22, Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his thirst, they offered him some sour wine, and then he cried, It is finished. This was to fulfill also the Scriptures. And when he cried, it is finished, he did not, at that point, passively die. It was not the wounds. It was not the suffocation. It wasn't all the the drama that we often read about that accompanies the crucifixion that killed him. Jesus himself, in accordance with his own word, who said previously, no one takes my life from me, but I freely give it up, at that moment, gave up his spirit. Matthew records at that very instant the, the the veil in the temple was torn in two. Earthquakes occurred all over the land. There were multiple resurrections at that point in time. One of the guards that was Was uh, at the foot of the cross observing, said, Surely this is the Son of God. The Jews asked Pilate, as we read, to break the legs of the criminals. This would speed up and make their death certain because they could no longer hold themselves up. But here we read that when one of the soldiers came to Jesus, He was already dead. He didn't break his legs in accordance with Scripture. So one of the soldiers pierced the side of Christ, and blood and water came out again to fulfill the Scripture. John is a reliable evidence to the fact that Jesus is of Christ and that he would come and suffer and die. In this passage, I want to leave with you four identifying characteristics that prove that Jesus actually died. The first is the unintentional prophecy of Pilate. The unintentional prophecy of Pilate. Pilate may have been the weakest of civil governors in the the time of Palestine. And yet when it came to this point of changing the sign over Christ's head, he refused to change it. This is the king of the Jews. It was written in three languages. Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. There's a sense where Pilate like Caiaphas was earlier, an unintentional prophet, when he said one man should die for the nation. Here, the prophet, here Pilate is, in, in a sense, acting as a prophet and displaying it through three languages, three people groups, that this person on the cross is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That's the first thing I'd like you to note about this passage. The second thing is that the soldiers attending the crucifix affirmed that he was dead. I don't have to belabor this, I don't think. I think you're, you've are you looked at this passage enough, you're mature enough to consider it, but you have to know that these Roman soldiers were expert at their trade. You have to know that If their job was to execute, they did their job well. And when the Roman soldiers on the behalf of the Roman Empire looked at Jesus and said, He is dead. He certainly was dead. He didn't seem to die as the Muslim faith believes. He didn't appear to die as as the early uh, ancient heresy of, of Docetism believed. He actually was dead. He was actually dead. The unintentional prophecy of Pilate, making sure that the whole world knew that this was Jesus, the King of the Jews, the testimony of the soldiers who said he is dead, the fulfillment of prophecy. In this short passage, and I think you probably picked it up, in this short passage there are four References to Old Testament accounts that prophesied to this event. In verse 24, the, the clothing of Jesus was prophesied. When he cried, in verse 28, I thirst, that was prophesied in the Old Testament. In verse 36, when the soldiers did, knew they didn't have to break his bones, that was prophesied. And again, as Zechariah says, that they will look upon the one they have pierced. was prophesied. John provides credible evidence from the witness of Rome, from the testimony of Scripture, and his own eyewitness that Christ died on the cross. He actually, really, in fact, truly died. And if his death was an actual historical reality, then you'll know that in the weeks ahead when we talk about the resurrection, then it had to be an actual historical reality. John is providing convincing evidence to a second-generation Jewish reader that would read this gospel, scattered by the Roman Empire around Asia Minor, John is providing credible evidence to that first reader that this one they have heard of, Jesus, who claimed to be a Messiah, actually died. of course... We'd love to just move on to the resurrection, wouldn't we? But we have to wait and linger over this fact that Jesus actually died. It was a historical fact. And it so consumed the Apostle Paul. As I said at the beginning, he determined to know nothing apart from Jesus and Him crucified. The death of Jesus Christ invaded the worship of the early church. As the early church gathered every Lord's Day and broke bread together, at the end of their time, they were reminded by the apostles that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death until he comes. Paul was enraptured by the death of Christ. The early church focused, their worship focused on the death of Christ. I was thinking about that. I wondered how often we consider the death of Christ. I realized as my mind went through many of the old hymns of the church. You folks that love the old hymns, you'll you'll give me some kudos for this little remark. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Do we... Think of that when we sing. Could it be said of you and I this morning that this story that is in our Bibles, written in sort of a matter-of-fact sort of way, without all the drama of Mel Gibson, is it something we cherish? Could it be said of you and I that we cling the old rugged cross? Or what about Fanny Crosby as she wrote, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There's a precious fountain free to all the healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. Could that be said of you and I? Could it be said that you and I are characteristic characteristically people who stay near the cross. Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. I wonder if it could be said of us that at times our eye casts itself upon the cross. We sang a song in our church, and we've sung it lots. And I claim to be guilty this morning. I'd never noticed this before. Let me recount these words. We just sang them. It's from the hymn, or the song, In Christ Alone, by Keith Getty and Stuart Townend. The one verse says, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on Him was laid. Now, you remember the last line? Here. In the death of Christ, I live. Could that be said of you and I? Here in the death of Christ, I live. Would you agree with me this morning? I wonder... If I say something like, it's not our tendency to live in the death of Christ on a daily basis, would you agree with me? Would you agree with me that it's not our tendency to cling to the old rugged cross? Would you agree that it's not our tendency to keep near the cross? The rebuke to me is, why do I sing about this if I don't live this way? Would you agree with me that many of us fail to live every day under the shadow of the cross? Could it be that we've missed something along the way? Could it be that We really don't know what Paul means when he says, I have determined to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. Could it be that that's a foreign concept? An idea that many of us don't really realize what it really is. How does a preacher... I use that word to be personal, but you could apply it to any Christian worker. How does an elder, how does a deacon, how does a Sunday school teacher, how does a Bible study leader, a prayer group leader, how does a kids' club leader, but how does a preacher preach under the shadow of the cross? As I examine this personally, If I were to preach under the shadow of the cross, it would remind me that there's absolutely nothing good that I do that isn't tainted by sin. Nothing. One's best preaching, one's best best teaching, one's best praying is tainted by sin. Otherwise, you could just do that and be saved. The cross would be meaningless if you could preach and pray and teach and lead. Just think about every word that I've spoken to this morning has an influence of depravity on every single phrase. And if you think I'm being bizarre, in Jerry Bridges' good book that some of you have read, The Pursuit of Holiness... You know what he says? Even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's what it means for a preacher to preach near the cross. To realize that apart from the grace of God, there is nothing in me that can produce righteousness. How does a proud person live under the shadow of the cross? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians said after he gave his deliberation on this, he said, therefore, no human being can boast. Can you imagine me in a conversation, and and I'm starting to talk, and and right away the my own self-accomplishments and my own desires and my own interests and and all who I am starts to surface. And can you imagine if this could take place that I would just cast one look upon the cross? Can you imagine what that does to one's pride? Therefore, the same Paul that said he would know nothing but the cross also said I will boast in nothing but the cross. Are you finding this foreign to our human experience in Canada in Lakeland in 2021 do you find the preaching and the nearness and the clinging and the glory in the cross something that is foreign to our experience How does a broken person overcome their sin in the shadow of the cross Recognition of our sin should cause us to run to the cross. It is there we see our sin placed on our Savior. Spurgeon said, how can we remember Christ on the cross and make light of our sin? How is it possible to live in the cross and spend our time pursuing things by which Jesus had died for? How how does that make sense? How can we embrace and cherish and love the very things that our Savior bore on the cross in our place? How can one continue to live in sin? Embracing sin, harboring sin and at the same time live under the shadow of the cross. How does a hopeless person live in the shadow of the cross? Well, the answer is that the cross is not the end. (laughs) The cross isn't the end of life, it's the beginning of life. And a hopeless person can look to the cross and there realize, it is there where I saw the light. (laughs) And it's only getting better from here on. Lastly, how does a cold, spiritually casual and careless person live in the shadow of the cross? The answer is they don't. They don't. They've forgotten that it was the cross that once held a wondrous attraction for them. They've lost sight that the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear their sin on Calvary. If you're spiritually careless this morning, cold and aloof about the things of God, I invite you to the cross and your life will be changed in an instant. May it be our prayer today, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There's a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, forgive me and forgive us for our hypocrisy. We sing, oh how I cherish the old rugged cross. We sing that we, can, that we would live in the death of Christ. Yet it proves to be a foreign experience on a day-to-day basis from my life and I would dare say the lives of those who are listening intently this morning. And so with our dear sister... We pray, Jesus, keep us near the cross. May the cross find in our lives healing for our performance realities, for our hopelessness, for our casualness to holiness. May the cross... correction. May we be found as a people who only want to know Jesus and Him crucified. Father, do your work by your Spirit in our congregation and all those who are listening online. We plead for a revival of of cross centered living. And we ask that we would experience this not for our own gratification, but for the glory of our Savior and his cross, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me as I have the privilege of committing you to the benediction of Holy Scripture? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. May the peace of God go with you, and God bless each and every one of you.